Good morning. We are, we are in Romans chapter 4, as we continue through this great gospel book, and if you don't have a Bible, I would strongly urge you to pick up one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. Just flip that open to page 941, that'll bring you to our text this morning. We're continuing this study of the faith of Abraham. And working our way through chapter 4. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but maybe you've had this similar thought. I've gone to the mailbox and hoping that I would get a letter that told me about a long-lost rich relative who has passed away <laughs> and left me a, a large fortune. That's in, what's that? Oh, no, not the fake emails. I'm talking about something real, real. And, but all I get is bills and junk mail. I, I still haven't got the inheritance letter. But have you, ever thought, have you ever thought about that? You know, you're just waiting for some... No, you've never thought that. Wow. Independently wealthy. Good for you. No, I mean, because you hear stories all the time about people who, you know, they find out they had a, an uncle that was rich and dies and leaves them money. I, I read a story about someone in South America very wealthy, and upon their death, they just randomly went through the phone book and chose 70 people and, and gave their inheritance to them. Can you imagine? And then they got the call. So, I don't know if you know this, beloved, but we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance, and I'm going I'm to talk to you a little bit about that today. It's, it's way greater than any inheritance you could possibly in, receive from some dead rich uncle or grandma or grandpa that you don't know about. But we're going to look at that today a little bit. So I'm going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 4, and I'm going to read to verse 16 for the context and also for some review to go over some of the points that we've already covered. So if you would, let your eyes glance down at God's Word, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, and follow along as I read. The Apostle Paul writes these words, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but 
who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Inside of your bulletins, you'll find an, an outline. You'll find the following statement. I invite you to look there. We're going to simply, we're continuing to examine and draw out several truths from the faith of Abraham so that we might understand the role and nature of faith as it relates to our salvation. We've just been kind of adding to these truths as we're making our way through chapter 4 of this great book. And so I want to give you just a little bit of review in case you've missed some things or just by way of reminder, even if you've been here. Our first truth that we drew out of this text, specifically concerning the faith of Abraham, is it was not by works, it was not by works, but rather by faith that Abraham was justified. Okay, so we, we pulled that out of verses 1 through 8. Let me just remind you a little bit of, of what we, we learned there. Being justified, or this idea of justification, that is being made right with God, or having a right standing with God, is not something we earn or can work for. Rather, beloved, it is a righteous status that God gives freely as a gift to all those who completely put their faith in Him, to those who are trusting in God for their salvation. As it says in verse 5, you can look back, to the one who does not work, Paul says, but believes in Him, who is Him, God, who justifies the ungodly, that's us, His faith is counted, or another way to say that, credited as righteousness. Now listen, that is, what that means is, is when the, when the unrighteous, when sinners, when the ungodly fully trust in God for their salvation, God credits His own perfect righteousness to their spiritual account as a gift. It is a righteousness they have done nothing to earn. Did you hear that? They have done nothing to earn it. And this righteousness from God is what makes the sinner right with God. Get that. This righteousness from God, this gift of righteousness, is the very righteousness that makes a sinner right with God. This is exactly how Abraham was made right with God. Verse 3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified. Just as it was for Abraham, so it is for us, beloved. That's the point. The second truth we drew out and we looked at last week 
is it was not by circumcision, but rather by faith that Abraham was justified. So it wasn't by works, but by faith. It wasn't by circumcision, but by faith alone that Abraham was justified or made right with God or declared right with him. And we looked at that in verses 9 through 12. Abraham did not become right with God because he obeyed God when God commanded him to be circumcised. Rather, Abraham was made right with God long before, at least 14 years before, he ever underwent the Jewish rite of circumcision. As verse 11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. He already had it, and he had it not by his works, not by his obedience, not because he was a good guy, but he had it by faith in the God who saves and justifies. And he had it while he was still uncircumcised. And so we looked at that in detail last week, but Paul proves that it is not religious ceremonies It's not religious ceremonies that make a person right with God, beloved. Rather, it is faith alone that justifies the sinner. And just as it was for Abraham 2,000 years ago, so it is for us today. So that's what we've covered in the several weeks prior. And that brings us to the third truth I want to draw from this chapter, chapter 4, a chapter that is focusing in on the faith of Abraham. And here's point three. The promise to Abraham cannot be attained through the law, but rather it is guaranteed to all who share the faith of Abraham. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 16 for that point. So look back at your text for a second. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. You're going to have to really just focus and follow along with me because this can get confusing. Chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, through the law of God, but it came through the righteousness of faith. All right, we're going to, like we normally do, we're going to try to break this down and make sense of these passages here. We're going to begin by looking at the the promise Paul mentions here. The promise made to Abraham, according to Paul, was a promise from God that Abraham and his offspring would inherit the world. Would inherit the world. Now, beloved, that is quite a promise, don't you think? Okay? Can we just all agree on that? That's a huge, huge promise. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But first, what I want to do is talk to you about here Paul referring to Abraham's offspring. When he does that, when he talks about Abraham and his offspring, you need to understand, I've said this before, but I I want to make it clear, especially in light of this inheritance, that Paul is not strictly speaking about the physical descendants of Abraham or, as we understand them, the Jewish people. He is not talking specifically about the physical descendants of Abraham, but rather Paul means to include every person who shares the faith of Abraham. Every person who shares the faith of Abraham. We see that in the context. Paul says in verse 11 of this chapter that Abraham is the father 
of all, you can see it in the text, of all who believe. He's the father of all who believe, all who have faith. And he says in verse 16, he is the father of us all, of us all. Again, according to the context, this is referring to all those who believe like Abraham did. Okay? And I would also point out a similar statement Paul made in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, where Paul deals with some of the very same issues that he's dealing with in Romans. He says there that it is those of faith, or those who believe, depending on your translation, who are the children of Abraham. So who are the children of Abraham? Those who believe, those who have faith, those who have a similar faith as Abraham, who share in the faith of Abraham. Those are his spiritual children, his spiritual descendants. Those are the ones that Paul is talking about to whom the promise was made that they would be heirs of the world. You with me so far? So, beloved, just so you're real clear, if you're a Christian, you share in the faith of Abraham. You are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. You have an inheritance, an inheritance that includes the entire world. Okay? Now, we're going we're gonna to make sense of all this as we move through the text, but I just want to get that out front. Now, back to this promise made to Abraham and his offspring concerning inheriting the world. What is that all about exactly? What is that about, inheriting the world? Well, many Bible commentators believe, and I would tend to agree with them based on the context here, that this promise Paul refers to is somehow related to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so the promise that to Abraham and his descendants that they would be heirs of the world, inherit the world, is somehow related to the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant that Paul continually makes reference to in this chapter, chapter 4, by quoting and repeatedly referring back to Genesis 15, 6, where we read, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And maybe you weren't here, beloved, but it wasn't that Abraham just believes just something general about God, but that's specifically referring back to the promises that God made to Abraham. Promises that could not come to fulfillment if Abraham remained childless. God was going to make him a great nation. The entire world would be blessed through him and his descendants. Abraham had no descendants. He had no children. He was childless. And he was old, really old, and his wife was barren. No children. She couldn't, give, she couldn't have children. And so Abraham's like, God, it's been a long time since you made the promise to me, and yet still I have no children. And that's when God says, Abraham, look up into the sky. Do you see the stars? Can you count them? Such will your descendants be. And then we read Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God. What is that? He just believed that he was going to have a lot of descendants? No, but he believed, God, you are going to do everything you promised. All of these promises you've made to me, they are going to come about. I am trusting in you. And because of that, God credited to him his very righteousness. Now, as I've said before, but it's worth noting again, 
We talk about this, you know, this phrase, Abrahamic covenant, right? It is simply a title we use to refer to the special promises that were recorded in Genesis that God made to Abraham. And as I've just been telling you, and Abraham believed that God would fulfill. And by believing or having faith in those promises and in God to fulfill them, Abraham was justified or counted righteous or credited with the righteousness of God. Or another way to say it, salvation came to Abraham through faith in the promises of God. Okay? You with me? Stay with me. Now, I just said a moment ago that many Bible commentators believe that the promise Paul refers to here in Romans 4.13 concerning inheriting the world is somehow related to the Abrahamic covenant. The reason I said somehow, it's somehow related, It's because the specific promise of inheriting the world or being an heir of the world, those very words even, it is never stated exactly that way anywhere in the Old Testament. You're not going to find that exact phrasing, this promise to Abraham and his descendants of being heir of the world. So, Somehow, it's related to the Abrahamic covenant based on the context. So let me try to explain this to you the way I understand it, and I'm going to try to simplify it as much as I can. I could, some of the stuff I read this past week, my head was spinning as they were trying to explain the connection. So I'm going to, I'm going to dial it back a little bit and just try to deliver it in a way that I hope you can understand it, okay? And that it will make sense to you. How are the two connected? How is this promise of inheritance of the world connected to the promises that God made to Abraham that Abraham believed, and because he believed, he was counted righteous. He was justified. He was made right with God. He was a saved man. Well, as I've pointed out before, present or existing in the Abrahamic covenant. What is that? What's the Abrahamic covenant? The promises that God made to Abraham, the specific promises recorded for us in Genesis that Abraham believed, okay? Present or existing in the Abrahamic covenant, but not fully developed until later, was the promise, and we've looked at this before, was the promise that through Abraham, through his descendants, there would ultimately come the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior of mankind. Now, the way that promise is phrased is, through you, Abraham, blessing will come to the entire world. But Paul says of that promise, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, in that promise, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. That's what Paul calls that promise. In other words, he's saying... That's the gospel. That's the good news of Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, that he would be a descendant of Abraham, that through Abraham, even though he's childless, God was going to do something great, and through him would come the saving one, the Redeemer. Okay. And in the unfolding of God's revelation and plan, okay, so Abraham knew this was coming, he could see it coming, but did he know it was Jesus? 
No. I don't think he knew that the Messiah's name would be Jesus. We didn't find that out till much later in history. But as God's plan unfolded, as his revelation continued to progress, we now know the exact identity of who this promised Messiah is. The Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, God promised long ago, what's his name? Jesus, the Son of God, the one who said, and I reminded you, or I told you about this in John 8, 56, Jesus is the one who said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Caught up in all those promises that God made to Abraham was the reality for Abraham that the Messiah was coming through him. That the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who would right this messed up world and fix humanity, he was coming. And Abraham looked forward in hope and in faith and believed God that he was going to accomplish all that he had promised to him. Now follow me here. Now follow me. This Jesus, this Messiah, we know his name now. This one, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, is the very one that God has appointed heir. You can look at you can write it down and look it up later. He is the one that God has appointed heir of all things. All things. Jesus becomes the one to inherit all things. Nothing's left out, which would certainly include the world and everything in it. And get this. Jesus Christ is also the one of whom Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we as children of God, the saved, we are co-heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. Did you get that? We who are saved, We who believe, we who share in the faith of Abraham, we who belong to Christ, we who are in Christ, are co-heirs, according to God's word, with Christ. That means we, beloved, have the blessed hope of sharing the full inheritance of the one who has inherited all things, or is destined to inherit all things, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so let me try to tie all this together. So the incredible promise of inheriting the world is a promise that is directly tied to and comes through the Messiah, the Savior, the one who is present in the promises that God made to Abraham the promises that we call the Abrahamic covenant, the promises Abraham believed God to fulfill. Now let me just, and that's how I believe it's all connected, back to the Abrahamic covenant, this promise. Now let me just give you something to dwell on. Because of our relationship with Christ, this is just a a side point, because of our relationship with Christ, assuming you have one, one that you can only have through faith, We are destined, beloved, to inherit not this world. Listen, if that was the deal, 
I would say I want a refund. I want a refund. This world is not the world that I would be looking forward to as a blessed hope of sharing in with Christ. Not this world. But beloved, we are destined to inherit a new heaven and a new earth that God will give to all of those who share the faith of Abraham. It is a place described in Revelation 21, a place where we are told there will be no more death. No more. I don't want to inherit this world. This world is plagued with death and disease. In the world to come, in the new world, in the new heaven, there's no longer death. There's no longer mourning. There's no more crying because there's no more sorrow, beloved. There's no more pain. Physical, emotional, it's gone. This is a perfect place, a place that I am sure your soul longs for as a child of God. It is a place, beloved, you know why it's perfect? Because it is a place where sin does not exist. It is a place where only those who by faith, who have been made righteous or justified, dwell. Do you understand? Sin's been removed. The righteous dwell there. Who's that? Those who have been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a place where we will live with God and enjoy the treasure that He is forever. That is our inheritance. Back to Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world as we've just been talking about, did not come, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, I will attempt to support my position that I take concerning this passage as we move through the text, okay? So here's my position. I think Paul's primary point here is simply to deny, to deny that the promise to Abraham can be attained in any way through God's law. He's denying that. Why would he deny that? Because that, well, because it can't. That's the reality. That's the truth. And many Jews, unfortunately, believe that very thing. They believed it was through the law that they would attain this great inheritance. So in other words, what Paul is saying, you don't inherit the world as God has promised to Abraham. You do not inherit the world because of your efforts to conform to the law of God or obey it. Rather, you attain the promise through the righteousness of faith. Through the righteousness of faith. Or as the New International Version phrases that, through the righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness that comes by faith. This is the very righteousness that we've been talking about throughout the entire chapter. It's justification. It means 
The promise of inheriting the world is not based in any way on your own efforts, beloved, to be right with God through keeping the law. Did you hear what I just said? But rather, it is solely based on becoming right with God through faith in His Word, in His promises, what He has said. That is how we inherit the promise. Another translation of the Bible, which I'll just tell you up front, this translation of the Bible does more of interpreting the Bible. It interprets the Bible quite a bit, so it's not some places I think it, it errs. It's less of a strict translation, more of an interpretation. But here I, I thought it would be helpful. So they're going to they translate Romans 4.13 this way. Abraham and his family received a promise. God promised that Abraham would receive the world. And here it is. It would not come to him because he obeyed the law. That's an interpretation here, but I think it's accurate. It would come because of his faith, which made him right with God. Now, let's just keep moving through the text, and I think Paul's meaning here will become more clear to you and you'll see what I'm talking about. Let's just go to the next verse, Romans 4.14. For it is the adherence, for if it is, okay? It's a conditional state. If it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, if that's the case, faith is null, and the promise is void. Okay, so Paul, what he's doing here is he's helping us understand what he's getting at in verse 13 by explaining why the promise cannot be obtained through the law. Paul has just said there is no way that the promise comes through the law in any way. Rather, it comes to you through the righteousness of faith. And now he's going to explain why. He presents a hypothetical. If it is the case, if it is the reality that the adherence of the law or those who live by the law, those who come under the law that those are to be the heirs? If that's the case, in other words, if the inheritance of the world is dependent on obedience to the law or reliance upon the law, then guess what, Paul says, there will never be an inheritance. That's what he says. There will be no heirs. The promise would fail. It would fail. Paul is basically saying, if God had made the promise through the law, it would have amounted to nothing. Why? Why is that the case? One writer says this. I have a couple quotes for you. If it is the case that the inheritance is to be based on adherence to the law, then there will be no heirs. Why? Because no fallen human being, fallen human beings, that's a way of referring to sinners. That's us. No sinner, no fallen human being, no human being, period, can adequately adhere to the law. They can't fulfill it as God requires because his requirement is perfection. Right? We talked about this. God doesn't say 80% good enough. 70%, okay, you're pushing it, but you're still there. 
Anything below 70, you're out. Promise is off. He doesn't do that. In order to fulfill the law in any way that would make you acceptable to God, it's 100% perfection. Beloved, no one ever even comes anywhere close. And that means that faith is exercised in vain and the promise will never be fulfilled. If it is the case that we become inheritance of the promise because or through the law of God. Another writer puts it this way. I like this. This is good. Listen. If you are saying that God made the promise to Abraham, which is exactly what many Jews were saying, if you are saying he made the promise to Abraham on condition that he observed or kept the law, that immediately and automatically means that the promise never could have been and never can be fulfilled. Why is that? Because as Paul has already proved, beloved, nobody has ever been found who is capable of keeping the law. So if God had said to Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you a great promise, but it is on condition that you keep the law, he might as well not have made the promise. No one can keep the law. How do we know that? Paul has already told us this in Romans. All have sinned, all, and all fall short of the glory of God. None, no, not one, is righteous. Not one. Through the law, in fact, comes knowledge of sin. That's what he's already told us. So the writer goes on to say, the law means failure. Therefore, if the promise has been made, if it has been made through the medium of law, what God was giving, as it were, with his right hand, he would have been taking back with his left. Do you understand? Someone illustrated it like this. I, I'm going to steal it and use it. And I, think it's, I think it works. It would be like me making a promise to my children that I'm going to give them something really incredible, okay? Conditioned upon them following the specific, very specific rules for the next, I don't know, six months. So listen, you follow, you see the list of rules, follow them for six months. <laughs> and then at the end, I will give you this great reward. Why did I even make the promise in the first place? They can't follow the rules for more than a couple hours many times, let alone six months. You get it? By giving, I'd be taking right back. That is not what God did. That's why it's according to promise and faith in that promise that we receive the inheritance. Now look back at verse 15. He's just going to keep driving this home. Romans chapter 4, verse 15 Paul says, now, for the law, you guys, you're boasting in the law. You're relying upon the law. You think the law is going to make you right with God. You think it's because of your obedience to the law somehow that you are going to receive this great inheritance. The law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, that's an interesting statement. Paul here is now driving home the point that he was making in verse 14, what, which is that the law cannot secure our inheritance. That's the point of verse 15. He's going to drive it home now by pointing out what the law does do. 
Okay? Here's what the law cannot do. It cannot bring you your inheritance. It cannot secure inheritance. It's impossible. Let me tell you what it does. By its very nature, it brings about the wrath of God. (laughs) One writer says it this way. Wrath is the very opposite of the promise of blessing. The promise offers an inheritance and life and joy and glory. That's the promise. But wrath means punishment and suffering. So Paul argues that to speak of a promise being made through the medium of the law, if it comes through the law, it is a contradiction of terms because law always works wrath. But why does the law bring wrath? Why does it bring wrath? And Paul does that in an interesting way. He explains it in the second half of verse 15. Look back at your text where he says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. What is he getting at? Let me put it very simply to you. The law of God, the law of God turns sin, our sin, it turns it into transgression. It makes sin more than just unrighteousness, which it is, or a failure to live up to God's perfect standards, which it is, but rather it makes sin deliberate disobedience. It makes it a transgression. It makes it into rebellion. And nothing draws out the wrath of God more than rebellion. Let me put it like this for you. Okay? It is, it is one thing for your children to make messes around the house and not clean them up because they are lazy bums. That is one thing. But it is another thing. It is another thing for them to know that there is a rule that you have laid down that says they must clean up after themselves, but they simply don't do it. They don't obey it. They refuse. And now this is a transgression. This is a transgression. They may have been lazy. That's part of their sin nature. But now their sin has become a transgression because the law in the house says you shall clean up your messes. And the sinner looks into that law and says, I shall not. A willful violation of the law or command, it becomes, and that, beloved, as many of you know, naturally brings about the wrath of the lawgiver. You know what I'm talking about now without having to explain this all to you? I know you do. And so it is, and so it is with God. One writer puts it this way. Before, it's not going to pop up on your screen, just listen. Before and outside the Mosaic law, before and outside of it, the law that God gave to his people through his servant Moses. Before that and outside of that, wrath certainly exists for all people 
being sinners, stand under the sentence of condemnation. We read that in Romans 1.18. You don't need the law to experience the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God just for being sinners, okay? But the Mosaic law, that law produces even more wrath. Rather than rescuing people from the sentence of condemnation... Rather than doing that, rather than the law doing that, it confirms their condemnation. It absolutely confirms the fact that God should condemn them. Because look what they do when they receive my holy law. They violate it in any and many kind of ways. They rebel against it. The writer goes on to say, for by stating clearly and in great detail, which is what the law does, exactly what God requires of people, the law renders people even more accountable to God than they were without the law. It renders them even more accountable. You could at least try to claim ignorance, right? If you didn't have the law, but we have the law. The Jewish people had the law, and this was what was crazy. They were putting their trust, their hope, in the law to make them right with God. You're out of your mind. The law simply reveals how messed up, how sinful you are, and it absolutely affirms the fact that you should be condemned by God. Because you see the law, and yet you still violate it. You still transgress it. You are rebelling against the lawgiver. And that brings about wrath. You think the promise of blessing and joy comes through the law? Are you kidding? The law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. So one person summarizes verses 13 through 15 this way. Just kind of a summary now to catch us up where we are. Abraham and his descendants, Abraham and his descendants, and we've defined that, those who share the faith of Abraham, spiritual descendants, they will inherit the world through their attachment to Messiah. Because they are co-heirs with Christ, They will inherit the world because to Christ, God has given all things. And then the person goes on to say, the only way to receive that inheritance, beloved, the only way is to be righteous like Abraham, which cannot happen by the law. It did not happen by the law. It could not happen by the law. It wasn't the case for Abraham. It wasn't the case for Abraham's descendants. Because the law only brings wrath. The law doesn't make us righteous. The law reveals our unrighteousness. The law condemns. The law justifies God's wrath against us. So the only way we receive the inheritance is to be righteous like Abraham. It wasn't through the law. It wasn't through works. It wasn't through religious ceremonies like circumcision. But it must come to each person in the same way it came to Abraham that righteousness, and it comes, beloved, by faith. By faith. That's it. Now, we're actually going to stop right there. We're going to stop right there because I knew I would be out of time, and verse 16 is, let me read it, read it, read it to you, okay? We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, right at verse 16, You need to be here. You really do. You need to come back, and you need to hear the conclusion. All right, I know that the inheritance doesn't come through the law, Paul. In no way. 
either by reliance on the law, obedience to the law, that's not going to bring me this inheritance. Rather, Paul says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. Why does it depend on faith, Paul? In order that the promise may rest on grace. Oh, that's, I I can't say anything right now. I'm going to save it for next week because I'll just keep going. It's so that the promise may rest not on the law, but on grace, beloved. Unmerited and undeserved favor. That's what grace is. Unmerited. We didn't earn it. Undeserved. We don't deserve it. We deserve everything the law gives us. It rests on grace, and so it would also be guaranteed, guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Both Jew and Gentile who believe, who have faith, become inheritors of this great promise made to Abraham. Heirs. So come back next week. We're going to we're going we're gonna to conclude that and then jump into the, I believe, next point beginning in verse 17. Beloved, here's the bottom line. The inheritance, that great inheritance, that great hope of ours, it's not based on us working for it or trying to earn it or somehow God's going to be excited with us so then he writes us into his will. Right? That's kind of how we function in the world, right? If, I be, if I'm nice to Grandpa, maybe Grandpa will write me into his will and I'll get a piece of it when he passes. It, it doesn't work like that with God. In order to be right with God, in order to be fully acceptable to God, in order for God to consider giving you any type of blessing, you have to be absolutely righteous. Oops! Then forget it. None of us. None of us can look forward to any blessing at all. Certainly not the inheritance of the whole world. And that is why it all comes through faith. Faith in God, in His Word, in His promises. Promises specifically related to the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, the one who would come, the one who would give Himself up in the sinner's place so that God could forgive us of all of our sins, wipe them out, and credit to us His very righteousness, making us completely and fully acceptable to this perfectly holy God and allowing Him to open the door to His treasure house and pour it out on us in the life to come. You see? By faith. By faith, this inheritance comes. And that's why it rests on grace. It had to be by faith so that it would rest on grace and it would be guaranteed, guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Let's pray. Father God, we, we rejoice I, and, I, and I trust that we will meditate and think upon this passage. That Father as those who have placed our faith in Christ, our faith in you, 
trusting in you, God, to make us right with you. Trusting in you, God, through Christ to save us, redeem us, reconcile us. Trusting in you, God, because of that, we are made co-heirs with Christ. Unbelievable. To Christ, your word says, Father, you have given all things. And as co-heirs of Christ, we share in all those things with him through faith. Father, unbelievable. And you have just let us in a little bit about what some of those things are. A new heaven, a new earth. Father, the glories of that the glories of all of that, we can only begin to imagine. But we have enough. We know that there, Father, no sin will exist, no death, no mourning, no pain, for the former things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And more than that, Father, it is there that we will dwell with you forever. That is the great prize. That is the great reward in a world where we can dwell with our God perfectly and completely unhindered by anything. Father, thank you for this, but may we always remember that the only reason we can have such a blessed hope is because we have placed faith. We have faith. We believe in the promises that you have made to us, God. Abraham looked forward in history to those promises being fulfilled. We look back as they have been to, and are still waiting for full fulfillment, but we see partial fulfillment in Christ fulfilling those messianic promises, making all the promises possible because it is in him and through him that all the blessings of our salvation come. And so we look back 2,000 years and we believe. We believe, Father, what your word says concerning our Lord and Savior. That it is through him and him alone that we can and are, be, or are made right with you, God. Father, we thank you for these things. And when we walk through this very difficult world, we live in it, Father. May our blessed hope come pouring back into our minds and in our hearts. May we be reminded once again of our great inheritance that we have. Not an inheritance that we earn. Not one we deserve by any means. But one that is ours through faith alone. And Father, even when we consider that, we can't even boast in our faith. It's not like we're something special. But God, sovereignly, you came into our lives, opened our eyes, removed the, the plugs in our ears. You allowed us to hear your word once and forever. We heard it like we've never heard it before. And then you granted us faith and repentance to turn to you and turn from sin and believe and no longer be unbelieving, no longer be rebellious, but believe, humbly come to you, bow before you, recognize our great need, and recognize Christ as our great Savior. The whole thing is because of you. Your great love and your great grace. And that is why we boast in you, God. That is our boast. Thank you for our great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.